0: Hello, I'm Alina. Hello, I'm Janine. We're two sisters, two PhDs, relentlessly curious about too many things. This is Sister
1: Doctor Squared. Squares. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Sister Doctor Squared. Alina, how are you going? I know we're both pretty ridiculously busy at the moment, so I'm enjoying having this little moment to record with you. Yeah, it's nice to see you. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, a lot's going on. I am, as you know, in the midst of doing a kitchen renovation. Yes. So I'm in a new space at the moment for this recording, so hopefully the sound is okay. Mm-hmm. I mean... <laughs>
1: I've obviously stepped out of the studio to do this <laughs> recording if only we had a studio one day maybe one day that's
0: right yeah so renovating is all consuming i'm having dreams about draw handles and <laughs> tile grout <laughs> colors and industrial vacuum cleaners <laughs> fun times yes So before we get into the episode, we would like to acknowledge the Turrbal, Jagera and Yugamber people as the traditional owners of the lands from which we are recording this episode. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. So this episode is all about needle fear. I mentioned in the last episode, Janine, that, as you know, I've been volunteering at one of Brisbane's COVID mass vaccination hubs. Mm -hmm. And when I'm there, it's often a really fun and positive atmosphere. Mm. So many people are really in high spirits to be coming in for their vaccine. Yeah. But there's also some who I can see are very quiet, Mm. very timid, very nervous. And it's not necessarily worry about the vaccine itself. Mm -hmm. Some have actually said to me that they just have a fear of needles and are really anxious to be about to get one. Yes. So it got me thinking just how common is this fear of needles? Mm -hmm. Is needle fear common enough to be a threat to getting that high enough protection against COVID that we need across society or herd Mm -hmm. immunity as it's called? So that's what we're covering and we'll also get into what can cause needle fear and a little bit on what can be done about it. Sound good, Janine? Let's do it. Let's do it. So to kick things off, I'm going to get into kind of what's the size of the problem here? Mm. So I looked at a systematic review on fear of needles Now, for listeners, a systematic review is not a new study itself. This is where we collect all the previous studies that have been done on a particular topic and bring the findings together to try to summarise the science we have to date. This is often how we really get our best understanding of what is going on with a certain scientific issue. And as far as the hierarchy of scientific evidence goes, systematic reviews are at the top. Mm. And I'll just put it out there that I love systematic reviews. You do. You really do. (laughs) Janine's
1: rolling her eyes. Um, I can see on the Zoom screen. I I appreciate them, but I (coughs) would find doing one so intimidating. It looks, I, I mean, I've had a little bit of insight into just following along with some of the things you've been involved in and, yeah.
0: They're full on. Yes. I love the idea of them. I love using them to inform guidelines and policy. And I love doing them, <laughs> as you know, Janine. And apparently, yes. that makes me quite a little bit strange, according <laughs> to some of my peers. Uh, so I'm excited because now I get to talk about one on a podcast. Mm. But you are right, Jenny, there can be a lot of work and there can be anything from one study in a systematic review to hundreds or even thousands. So, obviously, one with hundreds or thousands is going to be a lot of work. Yep. Coming back to the task at hand, this review on fear of needles was published in 2018 in the Journal of Advanced Nursing and it was done by Jennifer McLennan and Mary Rogers from the University of Michigan. They wanted to know how common is needle fear and what are some of the characteristics of people who have needle fear. Mm -hmm. They also looked at how much people's avoidance of vaccinations and other medical care that involves needles is because of needle fear. So this research is important not just in terms of vaccinations but for a host of other really common medical practices where a needle is used. Now, Janine... We should point out here that needle fear is one thing. Many people might have a level of anxiety when it comes to getting a needle, Mm. but what is another thing entirely is full-blown needle phobia. Yeah, that's right. Or trypanophobia. Needle phobia is an actual psychiatric condition where there is a much more extreme level of anxiety and fear around needles. Someone with needle phobia might react very strongly to even a photo of a syringe yeah. or of say someone else having an injection. Yep. There's often a strong physiological response as well with needle phobia, and some people may even faint if they're around a needle. Mm-hmm. So you can probably guess that needle phobia is less common than needle fear. Mm. And in this review, they were looking at both needle fear and needle phobia, with needle phobia really coming under the umbrella of needle fear. The review included all studies that looked at needle fear and frequency of needle fear, no matter where they were published or in what language they were published. They found 119 eligible studies in total and 35 of these were included in the meta-analysis which is where we can statistically combine the actual data from the studies and do some analyses. Mm. Some of the studies were larger population-based studies with thousands of participants, and some were smaller clinical studies among specific groups of people who have injections relatively often, like people with diabetes, Mm. some dental patients, and people going through cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. So... Here's what they found. Okay. First, as you might expect, needle fear was most common among children. Yes. Most children under 10 had needle fear, over 80%. Wow. But it decreased with age. Mm -hmm. And by adolescence, it was 20 to 50%. -hmm. And for adults up to 40 years of age, it was 20 to 30%. Mm And then by older age, it was less than 5%. Mm-hmm. This means that as people age, they do seem to have less anxiety around needles. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was a kid, I
1: definitely had fear of needles. Yes. What about you? Yeah, we both yeah, did. Yeah, I remember yeah, we both did. really bad. I don't think I would say we had phobia, but we definitely no, I had don't think so. very obvious needle fear. Yeah, I would say the we were in the
0: 80%. <laughs> we were in the 80%. And it's definitely decreased over time. And for me, it's completely dissipated. And as you know, Janine, I've kind of just gone the other way. And now I kind of like needles. Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) I I have not gone that way. I still, (laughs) I will still get anxious before having one. It doesn't prevent me doing it. I still looked, I was still excited when I was getting my COVID vaccine, but I still, you know, that moment of, okay, they're about to inject it into me. It's hard for me to not tense my arm. I have to really consciously relax. Mm, yes, well, that so will only make it There's hurt a little more. bit of something still there, but,
0: yeah. Interesting. Well, I can't explain what exactly it is about needles that I like, but, <laughs> yes, I, I do enjoy... Uh, An injection, a blood (laughs)
1: test. Well, that's a whole other episode. Okay, so any researchers out there interested in Alina's new response? Maybe we need some new studies looking at people who like needles and what's going on there because it's pretty interesting (laughs) and bizarre. I would be interested in that.
0: Hand that pathology form over. (laughs) Um, So getting back to your paper, Alina. Indeed. (laughs) So that is what they found around age. Now, gender. Now, needle fear and needle phobia were more common in girls than boys and more common in women than in men. And this was the case across the different countries that were captured in the study. So it was quite a consistent finding And it got me thinking, Mm. why might this be? Yeah, that
1: was going to be my first question.
0: Well, they didn't get into why in this review. Mm -hmm. That wasn't sort of the scope of this review. But from other research on phobias, we know that this seems to be the case for phobias in general. Really? So if you look at different, yeah, if you look at different animal phobias, different situational phobias Mm -hmm. like heights, uh, darkness, small spaces... And other phobias, well, if you look at these, you do see them more often in women than men. Mm-hmm. It could be partly that women are more likely than men to admit to phobias. Okay. Or it could be genuine gender related differences in how phobias develop. Mm-hmm. Or it could be a bit from column A and a bit from column B. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. It might just be that women are more prone to certain types of phobias. Mm -hmm. It's interesting stuff. Now, they also looked at needle fear by certain diseases or conditions. So, as I mentioned, the people in some of the studies were people having treatment for cancer, say, uh, people with diabetes, people having routine dental care and others. And you can see... Even sometimes quite high rates of needle fear in these populations, even though these are people who might be having needles often as part of their medical care. So, say, having insulin injections, for example.
1: That's really interesting, isn't it? Because you would think that in those groups that they become, I I guess, desensitised over time, but it's interesting that it doesn't always go that way for some people. Mm.
0: Exactly. So it seems that having needles more often isn't necessarily associated with less anxiety about needles. And maybe even in some cases, it intensifies it. Yeah. So I pulled out some of the interesting findings that stuck out to me. Mm -hmm. And in one study among university students who were dental patients in Saudi Arabia, more than 80% had a fear of feeling the needle injected. Wow. And more than 80% had a fear of seeing the injection needle. Mm -hmm. So this is dental needles right now. I can relate to this a a little bit. I might love a blood test or a vaccination, but ooh, a dental needle, that's a little bit different, isn't it? right into the muscle, not fun. It's a special kind of sensation, that one. I do have a really good dentist though, and it's, I reckon, the best that I've ever had.
1: My dentist is great too. The last time I had to have an injection, they put, I guess, lignocaine. And for a good five minutes and just kind of numbed the whole area before they even did it, hardly felt anything. That's nice, I know. You know, they just go
0: above and beyond my dentist to just make me comfortable. I know. It's really good. It's such a good thing. It is. Hi, Paul. (laughs) Hi, Alana. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Now, in another study among people going through chemotherapy, Mm -hmm. get this, more than two-thirds of the adults in the study had an actual phobia... Wow. Of the syringe. Yeah. And more than half had a phobia of the butterfly needle.
1: That's interesting. I wonder, it would be interesting to go and look into that as to whether did they already have that phobia or did it develop because of the intense medical procedures they're having to undergo. Exactly. Mm. So we just know from this review that they were related. We
0: don't know which came first.
1: And I guess that's what's really great about systematic reviews is that you can start to identify some of these interesting questions. and then. That's right, Janine. <laughs> Thanks for
0: getting on board with <laughs> systematic reviews.
1: Love it. Now I don't oh, want to do one, though. Well, that's
0: fine. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. (laughs) So now to avoiding healthcare procedures due to needle fear. What's happening here? Well, based on two studies, 16% of adults avoided the flu vaccination because of needle fear. Wow. That's
1: one in six. It's really important when we're thinking about having to vaccinate against COVID and other infectious diseases to understand that this is really, these numbers are high.
0: Well, that, exactly. That's much higher than I would have thought. Yes, yeah, and it was similar for other vaccines as well, like tetanus and pneumococcal. Mm-hmm. For healthcare workers in hospitals, the proportion that avoided flu vax due to needle fear was eight percent.
1: Mm. Still, that was based on four than studies. I would think. That's I would expect almost nothing. I know. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, well, that eight percent—it's half
0: the rate that was reported for the general adult population. But yeah, it's it's still meaningful, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, very much. And then get this: for hospital workers more generally, so including other staff, not mm-hmm. just the healthcare workers, the proportion avoiding flu vax due to needle fear was twenty-seven percent. No. So, more than a quarter. That's huge. That was based on just one study, though. Mm -hmm. So, a little bit of caution in interpreting that result. Yeah. But very interesting. And there were also links between needle fear and people avoiding going to the dentist, Mm -hmm. as we just discussed. (laughs) Yeah. There's evidence of some people with diabetes avoiding insulin injections Mm -hmm. and also needle fear was linked with avoiding blood tests Mm -hmm. that I can't relate to. That's probably my favourite. (laughs) So, in sum, really, this review shows that needle fear is more common than people may think. It's certainly more common than I thought. And it seems to be geographically widespread. It's more common in kids and women. And it can be common even among people with specific healthcare needs, which mean that they have needles relatively often and really importantly it does contribute to vaccination avoidance Mm. as well as avoidance of other health care and as the authors point out a lot of the public health messaging to drive up vaccination rates is to do with vaccine safety Mm -hmm. and effectiveness it's to do with making it convenient for people reminding them and giving them incentives it's far more motivational Mm -hmm. But there's almost nothing Mm. dealing with needle fear. That's right. So there's really a gap here. Yeah. And it shows that we really need to be using evidence-based ways to reduce needle fear and needle phobia to get these people over the line too. Mm. So where it's possible, alternatives to needles should be available. Rather than an injection, sometimes you can have edible vaccines, there's patches, micro needles, mouth strips, um, nasal sprays, and others. So depending on the type of vaccination, it might be, you might be able to provide the vaccination with these alternative methods. And, Janine, there is also a needle-free jet injector that I read about. What? Which sounds super cool. So what it does is it shoots. A super fine jet of the vaccine into the tissue. Really? Very cool technology. Wow. And certainly when it comes to COVID specifically, there are some trials going on at the moment, I believe, looking at needle-free ways to provide the vaccination. And one of them is a vaccine patch. They might be a while off, Mm -hmm. but they're certainly on the horizon at least. Now, Janine, you're going to tell us a little bit about what can cause needle fear in the first place. I'm really excited to hear about this. I've got some ideas, but I think this will be super interesting. So we'll
1: be right back. Well, thanks, Alina. That was a really interesting overview of the scale of the problem. We're going to now start to get into how this might develop in some situations. So the specific paper I've selected is by Baxter and colleagues and it was published in 2017 in the journal Vaccine. And this paper is focusing explicitly on how needle fear might initially develop in children and what other ramifications Mm -hmm. of this. Now, they mention that previous studies have suggested that the fear of needles may develop around the age of five. And this is actually in line with when a lot of phobias may develop So they've started with that sort of background insight. So they're really interested in learning what is related to this fear and what can we do about it. The participants were 120 children that were aged 10 to 12 years old and also their parents. The children were all patients from a private paediatric clinic in Georgia in the US. And the authors do point out that there is a bit of a limitation as this particular cohort was all from high SES areas. So this may not be applicable across the board, but I still think it's got some really important insights. So they had the participants rate their anxiety around needles on what is called a 100 millimetre visual scale. Now, this is kind of like a ruler on a piece of paper. So it's like a printed out ruler where it goes up from zero all the way to 100 And you ask the participants, can you indicate on this where the anxiety would be? Zero being there's no fear and then 100 is the most fear possible. So they did three of these scales for each family. So firstly, they asked the children themselves to indicate on a piece of paper how fearful they were about having a needle that day. Then they had their parents do it on a separate piece of paper and they were reporting how anxious they themselves as parents were feeling about their child having needles that day. And then finally, the parents were asked to do a separate measure, so on another piece of paper again, and they were asked, how upset has your child been in the past about having a needle. So again, it was a scale of zero to 100, but this time it's zero is not upset, 100 is extremely upset. Okay, so this is usually how anxious does your child get about needles? Yeah, so asking how are you feeling right now and let's reflect on the past as well. Interesting. And important to point out that it was done in a blind way, so that means that the parents and the children didn't see what each other put down on their piece of paper. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, so then they're going to compare these different estimates of anxiety with a few factors. So one of the things they're looking at is how many vaccinations had those children had, specifically between those ages of four and six, because remember that the fear or phobia may tend to develop around the age of five. That seems to be the critical time. Mm. Which is interesting. And then they also looked at what was the highest number of needles they got on any single day in that time period. So perhaps they only ever had one needle each time they had one or were there some incidents where they had two needles on one single day or three or four? Okay, right. So how was it
0: that they obtained the data on the vaccinations did they ask parents,
1: or was it actual health records? Oh yes, so they they went and accessed the official health records, so through the relevant government body, or even through their GP. And I think they okay, were so official data, right? Yeah, maybe a very small number where it was hard to access, so they did rely on the parent. But okay. in most cases, it was official data. Okay, so as I mentioned at the start, but I, it's important to point this out again: these children that were in the study on the day that they're doing this rating of their fear, they're actually aged between 10 and 12. So we're looking at what is happening for these kids now, which is five years or more after they were in that critical age range, if that makes sense. Yes, Okay. So the results were really interesting. So in general, the children were more anxious about getting a needle than their parents were feeling about their child getting a needle, which probably isn't that surprising. Sure. And there was just overall not a strong association between the level of anxiety in kids and their parents. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. So it suggests that the parents were not very accurate in predicting anxiety levels in kids. And I think it also suggests that there doesn't seem to be strong evidence that the children are, like, mirroring their parents' anxiety or vice versa?
0: Yeah, that's right. That's interesting. Mm.
1: Okay, so the critical results were that the fear of needles was not related to how many needles that they'd had from those ages of four to six. There was no relationship. Okay, so it didn't necessarily matter how many needles they had in that critical age window of four to six. didn't matter. Right. But what was very important was... If they'd had a lot of needles on a certain day, even if that only happened once. So what the authors explain is that the probability of a child being in the highest range of the fear scale was linked to having lots of needles on a single day at some point during the ages of four to six. Right. So let's make sure this is clear. If we drill down on kids that only ever had one needle on any given day in those age ranges, none of those kids ended up in the high fear group. Yes. Okay? However, when we increase the number of needles to two, so some kids may have had two needles on a certain day between ages of four and six, then we start seeing some of those kids popping up in the high fear group. And when we increase to three or four numbers on a single day, we see another big jump in the numbers of kids from that scenario in the high fear group.
0: That is interesting. So it doesn't matter how many they've had in that critical window. Mm. It's just about whether they had more than one on a single day. Yeah,
1: it's like the exact schedule that they've followed. You could have one child who's had four needles between ages four to six that's fine. But if they had the four on one day, there's a high chance that they may develop the needle fear or even the needle phobia. Well, it makes sense, right, for a young child of that age to have four vaccinations
0: in one day, I can't imagine is <laughs> very fun.
1: No, and I think it is important to really recognise this critical window of time because I think often as parents, when, when you're getting a your child vaccinated, it's not fun, but you think, oh, they won't remember, it'll be fine. But actually... If they're over age four, maybe they will. and
0: mm, That's definitely old enough to remember, isn't it? Yeah. And have potentially a traumatic experience. That's
1: right. So another interesting point to raise is that the authors also looked at, they looked at these kids and whether they had had the human papillomavirus, the HPV vaccine, um, and then have a look, is there any relationship between the uptake of that and this fear? And they oh, found right. that there okay. was... There was the suggestion of a relationship. So if we look at the group of children that had low fear relating to needles, 48% of them had completed the HPV vaccine. But when they looked at the children with the high fear, 27% only had completed that vaccine. They did some statistics and they didn't find a significant difference anyone interested, the p-value was 0.09. This means there's a 9% chance that this could just be a random result. Generally in science, we're looking for a level of less than 5%. So it's close, but it's not quite there. And the authors suggest that if they had a larger sample, perhaps they would have detected that. So I think it's suggesting that there is a a follow-on effect. If they have developed this fear or this phobia, they're less likely to go on to get an important vaccine. There you go. That's interesting. Yeah. So main takeaways is that overall what we are seeing is that if children are given multiple injections on the same day between those really important ages of four and six, this really does increase the chance that they may develop a needle fear or phobia. But if they're given that exact same number of injections spread out more over time, there is no increased risk in this fear developing. So really, reducing the number of injections that a child is getting on a single day seems like a really good idea, I think. And they point out there is some concern that doing this means people may not come back to get additional, like, it's just convenient, right? Let's just do it all now while you're here. Sure. But they didn't find any evidence. They'd had a quick look at that. They didn't find any evidence that spreading things out reduced people's compliance to to return. So that's an important point too.
0: Yeah, well, certainly at least, like you said at the start, within this particular population, mm that might not have been a barrier. I can imagine it might be a barrier to other, that's let's say, people living in rural areas. Yeah, that's
1: true. Uh, where there's less healthcare services yeah. around. Mm. So, you know, as Alina said, using alternatives where possible could be really important in that age range. So let's, let's try not to give the children a traumatic or a painful experience as much as possible as well. And just on that, when I had my COVID vaccine, I really didn't feel anything. And I was wondering if it was some kind of new... I don't know. You mentioned microneedles. I don't really know much about them, but I just really didn't feel like anything happened. <laughs> and, I, you know, you guys, have you done it? What? Is it finished? Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Good on you, Janine. I think you were just so excited. But you also sounds like you had a very great nurse. So the author suggests that needle desensitization is potentially a really important way to treat the issue. So this is quite similar to exposure therapy, which has been shown to be the gold standard treatment for many phobias. Of course, which is essentially facing your fears. Yeah, that's right. But doing it in a very graded, gradual, controlled way. Uh, the lead author also suggested in an accompanying news piece that they would recommend that if your child is in the ages of four to six, don't hold them down to get a needle. That's actually worse to just let them sit in your lap and use other things like distractions, have special treats lined up for afterwards. That is a better way to go. Of course. That makes a lot of sense. Let's try and make this a fun day overall, even if there's one little part that might not be that fun. And... I did want to also point out that having vaccines as infants doesn't seem to cause long-term issues because that made me really relieved because I can remember holding my little baby down when he was about three months old to get multiple injections on a single day and that was just traumatic for everyone. But he doesn't remember it. He he wasn't able to create the long-term memory of that. So, look, parents out there, up until the age of four, do what you need to do. Once you hit four... Start being really careful and strategic about how we're doing this. Yeah, we really need to make the vaccination schedule from ages four to six as stress free as possible for everyone. Exactly, sounds like a very clear takeaway, Janine. Yeah, you pointed out that
0: distraction is helpful with children having vaccinations. Yes, and I also read about virtual reality being used, so this is not in kids necessarily, oh. this is. Uh, adult populations, virtual reality being used as a distraction technique for people who need to have a needle and have needle fear or needle phobia. Mm -hmm. So they go into this immersive environment. It might be like they're skiing down a mountain or they're on a roller coaster or they're doing a street luge (laughs) while they're having their vaccination. Wow.
1: Wow. Isn't that cool? I just want to do that anyway. (laughs) Yeah, that just sounds fun. Oh, look, if anyone's researching that, I'm happy to volunteer for that experiment.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and apparently when it comes to needle fear, it can be very helpful for these people. Oh, great. Imagine doing your COVID vaccination while you're skydiving or something.
1: (laughs) You know, I see this as a real potential game changer because what if it was actually we flip it and say, you're coming in to test out some VR Also, we're going to do your vaccine. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's not unethical at all, Janine. (laughs) No, no, no. Just make it a real selling point. Come and do this. And if you like, we'll do that at the same time. (laughs) Uh, One thing I did want to point out before we wrap up is that if you or your child has happened to have a big pile of needles on a single day in that critical age range, we don't want anyone really freaking out because that doesn't mean they're definitely going to develop the fear or the phobia. It's just that there is an increased chance of it. So I just wanted to make that... Clear. That's right. It's a correlation, not necessarily right. a cause and effect relationship. That's right.
0: Well, awesome stuff. So, what we've learned, I think, is that first of all, prevention of needle fear and needle phobia is important. Mm-hmm. And one way to do this is to space out vaccinations in mm-hmm. that critical age window in childhood. Mm-hmm. And then for people who go on to develop fear, then ways to reduce that fear through alternatives to needles as well as exposure therapy, um, distraction and Mm -hmm. other interventions that are used to reduce the fear. Mm. So hopefully we see a little bit more of this in in the years to come because I think it's going to be really
1: important. Well, that's right. I mean, it's just inevitable that COVID will continue mutating and new strains are going to pop up. So I can't see how boosters won't become part of the strategy. So we really want people on board and we want to be supporting them if this is really challenging for them. That's right.
0: Okay, Janine, shall we do an inner
1: square? Okay, squares. It's that time. Alina, what brought out your inner square recently?
0: Well, first of all, I would just like to follow up on last episode's Inner Square where we talked about the scary celestial objects oh, YouTube yeah. video. Yeah, 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 And I can say now that it's lost its power over me, Janine.
1: I told you, when I first watched it, it was really full-on and confronting and now I find it quite pleasant. Well, the last time I
0: watched it, I just found it quite entertaining and funny. Well, there you I go. think the process of us... Talking it through, airing it on the podcast, it was like catharsis for me. Okay, good. And it's lost its power. Okay. So I think that's some good progress. there you
1: go. We hope everyone enjoyed that one. Yeah, if you haven't watched it, do have a look at
0: episode 11 show notes and let us know what you think. Mm. Okay, so my inner square for this episode is all around the brand new Australian season of Celebrity Letters and Numbers. (gasps) <gasps> which started recently.
1: I'm going to talk about that too. <laughs> Are you serious? Yes. Oh wow. Well, that's funny. Look, okay. as we said before, we never share inner squares. This was bound to happen eventually. It's okay. No, we I've, don't got, share I've, them I've beforehand. got other things too. It's fine. You continue. Oh, we're so in sync. I love it.
0: <laughs> well, for those who don't know, Letters and Numbers is a game show where the contestants compete against each other in various games that test their language and numerical skills. Yes. And it's very much peppered with good comedy. There's plenty of comedians involved, certainly in this celebrity um, franchise of the show. Now, Janine, don't hate me, but I had actually never watched it before. What? (laughs) Uh Oh, Oh, I knew that was coming. Wow. I was aware of it. I had seen snippets, but I had never watched a full show. I know. But after watching just the opening episode... For the Australian version, I was pretty hooked. It's it's good. It was so funny and it's full of nerdy puns about words and maths.
1: You know, it's been such a long time since they had it on and it was being replayed on SBS here in Australia for, I don't know, the last 10 years and I would just keep watching the same episodes over and over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) you know, because you can still do the, you can still have a go at the activities. They don't age, they don't get old.
0: No, that's right. This is the thing. And I love that you will laugh, you will think and you will learn. That's right. Listeners, I think you will dig it. I mean, if you like this podcast, if you're 12 episodes into Sister Doctor Squared and still here, I think you might enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah, we think you'll like it. <laughs> I really loved the word trivia with David Astle mm-hmm. and the guest person in the dictionary corner. Yes. And I learned that there were various words and phrases that we think are ultra modern but have actually been around for up yeah, to centuries in some so cases. That was so interesting. Wasn't it? Yes. So OMG was one. Yes. Legit yes. was one. Yes. And even bang, as in the slang term for sex. That was used back in the 16th century. Yeah, I would have thought. So that is my inner square, and I'll just close off by saying that it's on on a Saturday night, which I love. (laughs) I love that (laughs) the SBS has embraced that, yes, enough people on a Saturday night will choose arithmetic and linguistics over something else. (laughs) And it's obviously great if you're in lockdown, but it does leave a conundrum. Okay. If a friend invites me out on a Saturday night, mm. I've got a decision to make. We yeah. have. Look, you can't catch up <laughs> on it, Alina. It, it is <laughs> We've available. you have got to weigh it
1: up. But what, <laughs> why, I know, why don't you ask them to come to you and you can watch it together?
0: Yeah, or, or just say, can we go after letters and numbers? <laughs> There you go. This whole this inner square is not sponsored. No,
1: by the way, it's, it's a great show, and it's really great for kids. I mean, the, with the the new season with the comedians, some things can be get a little inappropriate for children. But the old episodes, if they do repeat those, it's great for kids. It's fun, and they get right into it. Mm, good stuff, especially your kid. <laughs> well, he doesn't really like maths very much. It has been helping to get him engaged. Well, there in you the go. Show. This is mm. education entertainment. It's good stuff. Well, look, are you finished? Because it leads perfectly into <laughs> mine. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Can we just wrestle this along, please? <laughs> look, um, well, because mine is very similar, but you will recall that very recently, as I just mentioned, my little boy is, is not really that into maths. There's a little bit of maths anxiety and maths hesitancy. And we were recently having lunch at a cafe, you, me, your partner Mel and my little boy, and... I don't really know how it came up, but he just started getting all excited to teach us the new strategy they'd been taught in how to do addition. And he was saying, I can add up two, three digit numbers, any two numbers, you just give them to me and I'll do it. And this new strategy he's been taught is called the split strategy. And it's so good. So he's we sat at the cafe being taught grade three maths the modern version. And loving it. <laughs> it is so good. This new strategy is so much better than the way we were taught. So It is. It's amazing. I went I almost couldn't
0: believe when he did it that I, know. I had to get my calculator out to check <laughs> if he had the right answer and he did. And he did it. He can even do it in his head. That's he doesn't right. need the pen That's and paper. What, that
1: is the brilliance of it. They learn how to do it pen and paper but then they can actually start to do it in their head, which I didn't really... I don't feel like we got to that point, not at his age, being able to taught two things. I would have absolutely needed pen and paper. That's how we were taught to do it. Yep. So what really brought out my inner square is I got home and of course I had to start having a look at this strategy because I don't know about this strategy. Why wasn't I taught this strategy? And I went and found some videos of it. And all the videos I found of maths teachers explaining it had Australian accents, so I don't know if this is being taught in other countries or if this is an Australian thing. I don't know. So I'm wow. putting the call out. I want to know. We've got some listeners all over the world, which, by the way, we love having you along. We, we watch where everyone's from. It's very exciting. So listeners all over the world, are your children being taught the split strategy? Because if they're not, get onto it because it is awesome. Can you just, for those who don't
0: know, do you want to just briefly explain what it is?
1: Well, so say you've got two three-digit numbers, so, I don't know, 524 plus 368. So you want to add those two numbers together. So what you do is you, you split them out into their different hundreds, tens and ones columns. So we would say, first, you go, what's 500 plus 300? Add the hundreds, you get 800. Then what's 20 plus 60? You get 80. And then what's 4 plus 8? And so you end up with 892 and you can do it in your head. It's brilliant. It's so easy. It is. And it, it makes it seem really easy. <laughs> it is. And it's fun. And that's what's the best it thing about fun. it is that my little boy was excited to share maths with us and teach us maths. So whatever they're doing in his classroom is absolutely incredible.
0: I really enjoyed that lunch. I and did it, too. The nerdiness just went on. Hey, didn't well, it? do you remember then we started talking about how stressful it was when we were all learning long division? I think that was you and Mel yes. and David and I were doing colouring in. Okay, maybe. Do you remember I was helping him colour in the Amazon rainforest oh, yeah. <laughs> image? But I, I wasn't I was colouring in the dolphin and I did it like a light grey colour because I didn't know that it was a river dolphin and river dolphins are pink. Oh, yes. You got in big trouble about that. (laughs) I I thought it was a regular
1: colouring in book. I
0: didn't know it was a scientifically accurate depiction of the ecosystem of the Amazon rainforest. My little
1: boy's colouring ins are very, very accurate. (laughs) Well, I didn't actually know that a river dolphin was a thing. (laughs) We'll put and some yes, links my up nephew well. was
0: very disappointed with me. <laughs> and I said to him, as I say to you, Janine, mummy studied animals and I studied humans. <laughs> you know animals and ecosystems, and I know people and health systems. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but that's. That's just not cool compared to what he's into. But I pointed out to you that I since I have since found a pink and grey river dolphin. I sent you an email so you can show it to David and say that that's the river dolphin I was colouring in. Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, is that a standard or is some kind of mutant? I'll look into this later. Look, you're it's in your email. You can have a look. You are hijacking my inner square time now.
0: I'm sorry. (laughs) Continue. (laughs) What I
1: wanted to say was that. Well, obviously you didn't listen, but Mel and I got right into discussing <laughs> long division and how much angst and tears it caused us in primary school because we just didn't understand. And, you know, when you get to the point when as soon as you see something, you've got so much anxiety around it, you just, you just can't even look at it, you don't even try. Yeah. We were both reflecting on this and how I ended up learning it much later on in high school because a good friend was just hanging out after school doing maths in his book and I, I could sort of see what he was doing and I knew it wasn't what we were doing because we were doing algebra and calculus. And I was like, what are you doing? And he went, oh, I could never really do long division in primary school. So I asked the maths teacher to teach me because I just really want to nail it. I was like, oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Can you teach me? So we sat there and he taught me and it was so exciting. So on the recent cafe trip, I taught Mel long division as well. We were both feeling very pleased with ourselves.
0: Wow. So, we are extremely nerdy.
1: Yeah, uh, so I'm going to put some videos up to some links for how to do long division if you, like us, would like to revisit that and really nail that now because you will be able to. And also this split strategy if you've got any young children. So my boy's around nine, so that seems to be the age that they're learning how to add up three-digit numbers. And this is the point where I was going to mention that Letters and Numbers is back on Australian TV, which is so exciting, and Lily Cerner, the maths whiz, is just like a queen, she is just amazing. She's so cool. Everyone needs to follow her on Twitter, Instagram, etc., because she's she's just yep. the best.
0: I have followed her from the Sister Doctor Squared account. Oh, good. Hi, hi, Lily. So obviously, we've <laughs> just planned your Saturday night for you, oh, listeners. Yeah. You can learn about long division, learn about river dolphins. <laughs> Watch Letters and Numbers <laughs> and do the split system for addition. That's it. Oh, I should also mention, and this is a shout-out to one of our faithful listeners, Dwan. Oh, yeah. Who tweeted recently about her delight at the fact that you can do your nine times tables on your fingers. Really? And I saw this tweet and was intrigued. So, obviously, I Googled it. And, yes, what you do, hold your two hands in front of your face. Doing with it, With your fingers yes. out. Then let's say you want to do nine times four. Okay. So then count along to your fourth finger on the left side. Yeah. One, two, three, and four. And then the fingers that remain either side of that finger uh-huh. tell you <gasps> what nine times four is. So it's three and six. Oh 36.
1: Goodness, 36. Oh, my goodness. That is so cool. So then,
0: yeah, if you if you do nine times seven, put your seventh finger down, then you get six and three. 63. No way. Mass it is, is so super cool. cool. Thanks, Duan.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. We also discussed that at the cafe. I, th- so... I must have missed that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was one nerdy lunch <laughs> and I loved it. Yep, so did I. All right, brilliant stuff. Well, we really hope you've enjoyed episode 12 of Sister Doctor Squared. Thank you for joining us. As always, details of everything we've talked about will be available on the website, sisterdoctorsquared.com. And please follow along with us on Facebook, Twitter and the Gram. We'd love to connect with you and we are also on YouTube.
1: Well, thanks, Alina. I really enjoyed the episode as always and we look forward to the next episode. Stay square out there. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Bye. (laughs) Bye.